Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. Uh, that is the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is Monday, April 16th, 2000. And 12, and it's tax day, tax day. Is it t tomorrow tax day or is today tax day? I don't know. I know that I've already taken care of my tax issues as of now when you're listening to this, but I was running a tax sale on the MSB, and that's what we're going to lead off today because I know I said the 17th last week. And then I looked and I saw, well, Monday's the 16th. I really don't know. So the sale runs until the 17th, close the business, because that's what I said. So I always do what I say and say what I do. And I don't think it's right for me to say something and then not do it. So the the, the sale, if you've uh, if you thought you missed out on it for uh, for uh, MSB tax uh, discount for tax day, discount code is taxes T A X E S a lower case. Write it on the form if you pay by mail or if you pay by PayPal. All you got to do is put that in when you're signing up. You get your first year for 40 bucks. So that's knocked out and out of the way. Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors because uh, I got a great guest. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. Before I, uh, I go for, forward, the guest today is Joe Nobody. And you'll find out why he calls himself Joe Nobody. There's actually a couple reasons for it. But he's an author. He's got some great books out. One called Holding Your Ground. Uh, the other one is called uh, Without the Rule of Law. And he's got several other books he'll be telling us about. We're going to be talking today about setting up security primarily at a bug out location, how to choose a bug out location. This guy's fascinating and he knows what he's talking about. He's worked in areas where these types of breakdowns have happened. He studied it. His books are awesome. I haven't read them all, but I've read part of one and it's got me hooked. I'm going to read them all. Great guy. I'll have him on in just a moment. Before I do though, again, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, the Berkey guy. His website is directive21.com. So the word directive, then the number two, the number one, and then a dot com. Now, the Berkey guy sells Berkey water filtration systems. I don't think anybody just fell out of their chair to hear that a guy that calls himself the Berkey guy would be a place you can get Berkey water filter systems. I think that Berkey's reputation as a high-quality, very, very cost-effective, beautiful-looking product speaks for itself. Um, if you've ever drank water that comes out of one, you'll wonder how you ever did without water filtration, especially if you're on city or county water or something like that, other than if you're fortunate to be on well, really nice uh, mineral and wish well water like I am. If you're drinking city water, you start drinking water out of a Berkey, you'll wonder how you choked it down for all these years when you get all of the, the junk out of there, like the fluoride and the chlorine. But... You can get a Berkey anywhere, can't you? I mean, you can go to gun shows today, and there's always a preparedness guy or two, and they're selling Berkeys. And if you go to a freaking, you know, one of these conventions they have now, like the survival get-togethers or whatever, preparedness expos, you go up and down the aisles, and like every fifth booth has a Berkey. So why would you get your Berkey filter from the Berkey guy instead of one of these other people? He's the Berkey guy. He was there before all of those people were. He wasn't doing this, you know, after everybody figured out, hey, this is a good market. He's been doing this for a long time. He's been taking care of this audience for three years. Total complaints received on Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy from this audience, that numbers close to 40,000 now. Zero in three years. That's why you go to the Berkey guy. I'm not going to tell you why you need to be filtering your water and why you need a plan in case there's a problem with the water supply. You should know that by now yourself. I will tell you, if you want a Berkey, there is no better place to go than Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy. That's my personal promise to you. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said a shelf, like something you put stuff on, you know? Uh, shelf reliance, not self-reliance, like you, yourself, your body, your person. We always hear the word self-reliance, so why shelf-reliance? Because they specialize in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat. So you put a can in the top, you pull a can out of the bottom, and it rotates around, just like the, those you know, fancy displays in supermarkets, but right in your own home. Whether you want a great big rack system that can hold a half a ton of food, or you want a little system just to make your pantry or cupboard more organized with the consolidator systems, they have what you're looking for. They're also the source of Thrive, long-term storage food. Now, long-term storage food from a lot of providers is pretty decent stuff. But when I, and I've tried it, I don't just store stuff and go, well, one day maybe I'll need it. I want to know, do I want this? Before I order a case, 
Let me order a can, possibly a smaller can if it's available. In Thrive it is, in many instances. You can get the smaller can or the bigger number 10 can. Let me order it. Let me cook it. Let me try it. Let me see if this stuff is good or if it sucks. And if it sucks, I don't. you might not get it, but I don't want it in my storage. Right? I want food I'm going to want to eat in my storage if I have to start breaking cans open to feed myself. I want it to taste good. If I have you know, somebody who I'm helping out and they got kids, I want the kids to eat it. Thrive's the best tasting stuff I've ever eaten. The variety is huge. Just start looking at what's available. It'll blow you away. So check them out today at shelfreliance.com. High quality stuff, folks. Good food, good storage systems, great people, and preppers themselves. They're, they're another group that they, they didn't just jump into this because it's a good market. They were doing this long before prepping was cool. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the best social media outlets to get in touch with me. Last but not least, do consider joining that member support brigade, folks. If you do that, you'll get all those exclusive, uh, uh, exclusive benefits. Uh, 32 different vendors that give you discounts, trying to add more all the time, including discounts at tspcopper.com on all copper products. At TSP Copper, members get 10% off. Check out TSP Copper today. And, of course, right now there's a sale. Remember, taxes is the discount code. That's for today and tomorrow, and then it's gone. I probably won't run another one until the summer. Uh, but $40 for your first year versus uh, $50 for your first year. Uh, again, though, first responders, you know, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, you know, firefighters, you guys that are out there, you know, if you're doing something like that, email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line, and I'll send you a special discount code that's even better than the sale that I'm running. Okay, with that, I got everything wrapped up. Again, I want to introduce our special guest today, um, Joe Nobody, and we're not going to tell you his real name, and he'll explain that to you when I'll ask him, because I know you want to know why he calls himself that. But he's the author of best-selling books like Holding Your Ground, uh, The Tatawaki Tuxedo, Holding Their Ground, which is a novel, and Without Rule of Law. 30 years he has spent in the government and as a, in the government and as a private contractor. Uh, he's a firearms instru instructor and he's a competition shooter. He's here today again to talk to us about setting up a bug out location or any location for defense if things fall apart. Hey Joe, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey Jack, thanks for having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here, sir. Well, I've uh, just going through your uh, litany of books, and you have some really cool ones. You've got uh, "Holding Your Ground," the uh, the the end of the world as we know it, uh, "Tuxedo," uh, Tatawaki, uh, "Holding Their Own," uh, "Without Rule of Law." Uh, you put out a lot of content. What kind of led you into this whole genre as a writer in the first place? Uh, for years, I've done government. Contracting, firearms instructing, uh, consulting. I've also uh, uh, done quite a bit of um, uh, private military contracting work and uh, got into personal uh, instructions in, in the last few years. And while I've kind of always been a prepper, I uh, decided that. Uh, uh, the people that were coming to my classes, the people that I was being asked to instruct were wanting to know more than just a little bit about home invasion or how to stop a mugger. And as I went into it a little bit deeper, I found out that they were actually preppers, just like me. Uh, so I wrote the first book, Holding Your Ground, and to really hand out as an instruction manual. And people read it and said, wow, uh, you ought to get a good editor and... Uh, you ought to publish this, and that's what we how we got started. Now I got to ask you something. I'm sure everybody out there is wondering, especially people who have never heard of you before. What's with the name, man, Joe Nobody? Is it an OPSEC thing, or is there another component to it? Well, actually, like a lot of things, there were multiple reasons. Uh, first of all, I have uh, non-disclosure agreements that. Uh, I really don't want to violate. They have nasty words in them like uh, treason and sedition and things like that. So uh, that's number one. Number two is I, I want my readers to understand they don't have to be a Green Beret. They don't have to be special forces. Any old Joe nobody can uh, execute what we prescribe in the books. It the uh, The content of most of the writing is really about as non-Rambo-ish, uh, if you will, as you can get. Uh, we preach a philosophy of stealth, of hiding in plain sight, of taking a, pas a passive 
uh, stance, uh, uh, a passive strategic outlook uh, in the event of a collapse or, uh, you know, society falling apart. And that's, you know, really why I chose the name. It's kind of a common term in shooting circles and uh, training circles. Uh, you know, I'm just a Joe Nobody. Very, very cool. And I think there, I, I actually kind of asked you that because I read that on your blog and I thought that was cool that you were trying to make it. Anybody can do this and you're coming across with information saying, yes, this information works. Yes, it's valid. Yes, it's proven. But don't believe me because I'm some badass uh, warrior. Believe me because you can judge the information for itself when you, when you take it in. So I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. With the, with the internet, and these days, you know, pretty much anybody can claim to be anything. And even if I were uh, super, uh, you know, apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic warrior guy, uh, which I'm not, the the uh, people have to make the judgment for themselves. People have to understand their capabilities. And we want the books, what's in the books, the techniques, what's prescribed or recommended. We want those to generate thought. Uh, don't go out and do it because I say to do it or because you say to do it or anybody else says to do it. Uh, you know, apocalypse has not happened, at, at least in recent history to our society. Nobody really knows. Uh, we have experience and, and study areas like Somalia. Uh, Egypt currently is going through some interesting iterations of, of its society and, and its infrastructure. Uh, there are Bosnia uh, back when all of the genocide was going on. Uh, so you can study places on the planet that have had a social breakdown, uh, that the people are existing without rule of law. But really, in a developed nation, in, a, in a, what some people refer to as a first world economy, it's not happened. So there are no experts. I would say you're completely right on that. Um, I would also say that, like, we actually can, though, learn a lot from people that have been through similar things and probably more than we can from people who just think about it. Like, um, there are people that went through the stuff in the Balkans. There are people like uh, Fernando Aguirre who went through collapse in Argentina that, that survived the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think that from what I've read of your work, a lot of the information you're, you're, you're giving people about what can happen and how bad things can go has not just historical precedent, but quite recent historical precedent. We don't have to go back, you know, to, to Weimar Germany. Uh, we can go back, you know, a decade in Argentina. We can go back a decade and a half in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, maybe almost 20 years with the beginning of the stuff in the Balkans. And we can see that all this stuff, uh, it's different, but there's similarities and threads when you say that, that go through all of them. It, I agree 100%. Uh, one of the examples that in the latest book, uh, Without Rule of Law, that we go through is actually Baghdad and Iraq. Um, I stress to my readers, you can have all of the food, all of the water, uh, shelter, medical supplies you want. If bad men uh, with weapons come and take that away from you, it's not going to do you any good. And so with security being job one, uh, nothing happens without security. And I back that up uh, with just looking at Baghdad after the fall of Saddam and call 4-2. Uh, there was the, the policeman disappeared, the fireman disappeared, the army uh, was was trying to just save their butts and get out of town, and I don't blame them uh, compared to what uh, when you consider what they were up against. Sure, yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I think everybody remembers the news stories about the looting. Everybody remembers the news stories uh, about in some of the remote towns, that's how the terrorists got a foothold. There was no rule of law. And when there's not... Uh, uh, people won't repair bridges. They won't open their shops. They won't go out and till the fields or take care of the livestock. They will hunker down. They will hide. They will, you know, sit at their front door with the shotgun or whatever they choose to do. And uh, security has to be job one is, is one of our core philosophies. 
And yeah, and I mean that's the big thing that we have you on here to talk about today is setting up your bug out location or any location for defense if things fall apart. And you you know you've worked with a lot of people on you know how to do that. So generally, the first thing I want to know from somebody that's actively doing it and has engaged in the past is what are the biggest mistakes that you see that people make when they're setting up a, you know, a plan like that? Because generally, if you've seen it a lot, there's a lot of it going on, and the only reason people are doing it is, frankly, they don't know it's a mistake or they wouldn't do it. So what's maybe the biggest mistake or, or group of common mistakes you see when people are setting up their security? The biggest mistake is... Uh an unprepared mental picture of what total violence is, of what evil men, uh, desperate men with weapons can do and would be willing to do. I, I meet so many preppers. They are such good people. Um, they, they think that uh, Grandpa's shotgun or the 38 special in the nightstand beside the bed is a survival weapon and that that's going to hold off the occasional rogue or, or misfit or looter. And so they're prepped, they're prepped. That's their security. Um, that is the, I think the single biggest hole in, in anybody's preparations if they believe that. Uh, I was on a, a interview not long ago, and they were taking calls, and one of the callers uh, uh, did a scenario, and the answer to the scenario, uh, me pretending to be the bad guy, was I would go hotwire a car and drive it through the front door, back it up, and in we pour, um, just like a breaching team. And so number one is be prepared for ultimate violence. It's not hard to do that. It's not a lot of money. Uh, again, you don't have to be a Navy SEAL carrying a log over your head down the beach. Uh, it, it's, it's really, there's a lot of very uh, common sense things. Landscaping, for example, uh, where you strategically put flower beds, raised flower beds, things like that. Uh, that can prepare for that sort of thing. Uh, the second uh, philosophy or the second biggest issue I see with preppers is typically they think that their home will stop bullets. They think that walls will stop bullets. They will not. Uh, even brick walls, uh, uh, real brick, not even a facade. Uh, so they think that they can maybe perhaps secure their doors uh, uh figure out how to fix, uh, put some plywood over the windows or something, and they would be secure. It, someone who knows ballistics, someone who knows firearms, someone who's seen a lot of combat will just eat the house away around them uh, if, if they want in. Uh, the Another thing that I commonly see as a weakness, uh, if you will, or, or a, a mis, misunderstanding is distance-based strategies. I've outlined to people before, if I think you've got food, I'm desperate, my family's starving, and I don't have a whole lot of uh, moral consciousness, I'm, you're not going to see me. I'm, I'm not going to walk up and knock on your door and say, hi, can uh, I have some of your food? I'm not even going to uh, bother to threaten you. I'm going to be 600 meters away. I'm going to be 300 meters away. You won't even see me. And so what we try to do in the books, uh, in our research, and the people that we use as experts and interview is kind of uh, teach this philosophy of how to prepare for defensive, passive uh, existence in that type of world. And, again, any old Joe nobody can do it. Uh, very good. I have a few things that when I uh, was getting ready for this interview with that question that I thought of that I think you've covered, but maybe I have a different uh, different way to ask them of you or some scenarios to present to you that you can uh, extrapolate on. One, I think that most people don't realize how vulnerable they actually are. And I think that you were kind of talking about that when you talk about somebody sitting 300 meters away. And, and, and my thought is if you take away my ethics – which, you know, hopefully never happens, and I, I don't expect that it will, but there are people that don't have any. And you said to me, Jack, there's a, a place over there, there's two or three people in that place, and they have stuff you need, go get it, 
I mean, that would be my, my first approach as, as, an, as an expert rifleman would be to just set up, wait, recon the place, determine a head count to be sure, wait till the most people are exposed as possible, take them out and then walk in. Uh, with some additional security to make sure there's not booby traps or stuff like that. But I don't think most people get that you're that vulnerable. And I think it's because what you were saying, they don't get the reality of the violence. There are people that would take that approach. They would just say, this is what I'm going to do, and wouldn't even shed a tear over doing it to them. And the more desperate things get, the more that that's true. There are people who do that now when there's fear of punishment. There there are people who do that, you know, uh, what do they call them, kick burglars. Uh, and most major metropolitan areas have, have experienced this sort of thing. And, and if I'm hungry, uh, you know, not even a, a criminal before, uh, the apocalypse, if you will, if I'm hungry, if I'm desperate and there is no medical care, why would you even bother letting someone see you? I'll, I'll tell you another thing that we teach is kidnapping. If you go to any of these areas of the world, Somalia, for example, is is uh, look at Mexico right now. Yeah, definitely Mexico. Argentina is rampant with it. Yeah, kidnapping is an industry. So in the scenario that you were just describing, um, you do not invoke proper noise and visibility discipline with your bug out location. I see your kids out playing in the backyard. I know this is a horrible scenario. It's every parent's worst nightmare. Um, but if a bad enough man sees your kids playing out in the backyard, they don't even have to waste a single valuable cartridge. They take your kid. You'll do anything to get them back. Absolutely. Now, another thing that it's been my experience that people don't realize is what they can't see. So they don't realize all of the opportunities that exist for somebody to take these approaches because they've never evaluated their area and said, here's my weak vision points. These are places that are difficult for me to surveil and kind of tandem with that. I don't, and maybe I'm jumping into some of the things you're going to suggest. I don't know. But the other thing is lack of any type of what I call automated, automated surveillance, whether it's motion detectors or things like that, because there's, for the average person that doesn't have like the, you know, the fantasy novel group of 12 guys that can take rotating guard shift, you got to sleep sometime. Uh, you can't see everything. So that's another thing that I think people just don't think about is having some level of surveillance that doesn't depend on them actively watching at every minute because sooner or later we all have to sleep, eat, take a dump, what have you. You're right on the mark there. Uh, and we're both singing off the same page of the music. One of the things that we stress is don't be surprised. Surprise, ask any uh, body who's ever walked into an ambush. Surprise, it will decimate everything. Um, and so early warning systems, area denial systems, I know these sound like really fancy, uh, expensive military terms. Uh, one of the best area denial systems I've ever seen is a uh, side of a yard where the owner had planted bamboo. And uh, anybody that's ever done any gardening knows uh, you got to be kind of careful with bamboo. It, it will take over. Yeah, I I would have needed an M1 Abrams tank to get through that that hedgerow. Um, talk to World War II veterans about the hedgerows of France. Uh, and so don't be surprised. And the best way to do that is one to install early warning systems. Uh, some people would call them surveillance systems. There's, there's a wee bit of a technical difference, but the thought is the same. And the other thing is, is deny accessibility for anybody, good guys or bad guys, uh, to certain areas of your bug out location. And that kind of creates also uh, in the in the military world we'd call them kill zones because if I deny you accessibility to one area I'm going to funnel you necessarily into others. Again, I don't want to jump ahead on you on this, but I mean let's just kind of start out with if, if you if you went out to consult with somebody and they said help me set up this place and make it defensible, what would be like the first five or six things you would teach them and help them set up? Well, the the first thing that I would work with them on would be their group. Uh, their family, their friends, who they expect to be at that bug out location. And the first decision is, is are we going to take an active 
a defensive stance or posture, uh, or are we going to go passive? 90% plus of the time, passive is the best way. I can't come steal your food and medicine or kidnap your children if I don't know you're there. And then the, after that, um, then you get, go through just the various uh, disciplines I refer to them as. Noise discipline, reducing visibility, uh, setting up early warning, uh, setting up area denial systems. You, you need to set up your fighting positions. And, and again, this isn't a slit trench with barbed wire uh, or foxholes out in your yard. Uh, a beautiful, uh, a very decorative, increase the value of your real estate uh, raised flower bed with a couple of railroad ties positioned properly can not only stop a vehicle from ramming into your front door, it can be a great fighting position. Uh, we go through pre-positioning supplies. Uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of preppers, they're, you know, not in tip-top physical condition. And by the time you grab a rifle and a few hundred rounds of ammunition and, uh, you know, your binoculars or your night vision or whatever else you need, and you move to a fighting position, um, it may take you a while to gather all that stuff up, get it organized, get out there, and it might be too late by then. And so that's typically the type of process that we go through. As you put it, fields of fire. Another very important aspect is what what is your, uh, I think the government would refer to them as policies. Uh, the military would refer to them as rules of engagement. Are you going to honor a white flag? Will you barter? Uh, where do people go when the first shot is fired? What's their responsibility? What's their role? Another thing that we cover extensively is have a bug out plan. You may not be able to hold. You may have to egress. Uh, so where's the rally point? Can you pre-position emergency supplies at the rally point? Do you know how to move from your bug out location to the rally point? Uh, the, the basic concept of bounding is what a lot of people call it. So you have to go through these scenarios uh, a little bit, but that's really where we start off with folks and try to do all of this activity without hurting the value, the usability, or even the appearance of their home or their cabin, uh, their campsite, wherever their BOL is. When, when you think about this personally, assuming the person has the means, do you think it's better for a person in this day and age with the threats that we face and, you know, personally, one of my biggest threats, if you've listened to the show before, as you said you had, you would know, is economic collapse. And I know all the, the misery that brings with it, that people that live in a suburban environment have a secondary location, even if they have to work with several other people to set it up. Is it better to try to stand in a situation where you have some space that you can you can actually utilize for these things rather than being in a typical neighborhood? We, with Holding Your Ground, there is a worksheet, and the first part of Holding Your Ground is go through and evaluate your location. One of the major factors in determining a bug out versus a bug in is population density. It becomes very difficult to hold a location for the average family, for the average prepper, in a high population density area. And the, the, the reason why that is, is in an economic collapse, in a situation where there are desperate people, people are going to be the problem. I mean, unless you're worried about packs of wild dogs, or the animals getting out of the zoo, or the dead arising from the uh, you know, <laughs> the ground and starting a zombie. Yeah, zombies. Yeah, I'm not worried about zombies. They're, uh, they're slow. I can outrun them, even me, you know. So you, I'm, I'm with you, man. People are the problem. So the more people, the, the more problems. That's right. We have sections in there for high-rise uh, apartment preppers and try to help with that as much as possible. But that is very difficult to defend, um, especially... Uh, when you consider there aren't, there probably won't be fire departments 
and fire is going to be uh, a problem. Uh, could very easily be a problem. Is that a thing that people like don't get as well in your experience? That there are places where it's not so much somebody's going to take what you have, but people will just destroy things because they're angry, snapped out, or pissed off. I mean, we've had recently that one guy that's the new head of the New Black Panther Society was in a Detroit town hall meeting uh, where they're putting the city into receivership because it's functionally bankrupt and basically said, before we let you take over, we will burn the town down. Do people not maybe get that sometimes it's not somebody coming to take it, but but just certain situations that people will destroy it just because they, they get the opportunity to do so? I... I don't think the average person out there can mentally relate to that. I mean, uh, Americans are good people. We live in a society where 10% of our population or less has protected us. And that's great. 911 on the cell phone is great. And, and God bless those that serve and, and have protected us and yourself included. Um, the, but but that all gets back to that philosophy of understanding and preparing for ultimate violence. I'll give you another scenario I've done. Um, we at a, a rifle class had vacuum cleaners. We had some old stand-up vacuum cleaners. Where we got them is not important, but they were old junk vacuum cleaners. And they made a great little stand-up target to, to put some cardboard up against. Uh, we caught them on fire just shooting at them. I've caught curtains on fire. I've caught couches on fire. And and people don't understand that bullets are very hot coming out of that barrel, and there's a lot of materials inside of homes that will burn. So the this whole notion of you won't be able to call 911, I'm probably going to be using a distance-based strategy against you if I'm the bad guy, if I'm the rogue. Uh, your 38 Special or your shotgun's not going to do the trick. You need to prepare for desperate, well-armed, probably with some training, people. They're going to be the problem. Yeah, I mean, talk about that a little bit. I see things this way when I evaluate any group of people. There will be a percentage of them that are scum, and the vast majority will not be. But I can say that about bankers, lawyers, priests, soldiers, police officers, nuns, right? That any time we get a group of people together, there's always the percentage that's the dangerous percentage. And there's an awful lot of people with military and law enforcement and merc training out there. And the more of them, the more that percentage adds up. And small groups like that, to me, with training, are more dangerous than the just angry mob like we saw in London. Because they don't make stupid mistakes. They don't line up outside of your house and demand things. They don't, you know, you know, because I think a lot of preppers have this, and I want you to talk about some of these other myths too. Like this myth that, like, okay, the mob will come down my road, I'll shoot the leader in the head from 100 yards out, and they'll turn around and go away. But to me, those those people without the ethics that have the training are the biggest threat. Let me just say this: um, I'm I'm a prepper. I have my food. I have my seed banks. I have my bug out location. If I lose all of that, I, I'm a Christian man. If I lose all of that, how many nights do you think? I'm going to listen to my children cry because they're hungry. How many nights can any human being stand that? Military training or not, law enforcement officer or not, Christian or not. And when you see people in that desperation, if you watch, you don't have to go there. I wouldn't advise that you go there. It's it's not a nice place. But watch documentaries. Read United Nations reports on Somalia. Um, uh, they've had without rule of law there basically for 20 years or more. And you have uh, tribal coalitions. You have gangs that form. You have religious coalitions. You have people who just band together, form a little militia, and go out and raid for food because they're desperate. And I don't care who you are. 
if your family is starving to death and you see or know of somebody that has some food and they won't barter, they won't give it up, it's going to be very, very hard to keep your moral perspective. Are there some myths that you think that people, because we just kind of touched on that there, but some common myths about defense and security of a location? There are. We've already kind of touched on those. You know, again, walls don't stop bullets. Um, people are going to, uh, one of my favorite myths, uh, and we've touched on this on and off already, uh, the bad guy is going to walk up and try to knock in your door with a rifle butt, and you're going to be on the other side waiting for him, and, and you'll get him. Um, and uh, you spoke of one. If I cut off the head of the snake, the problem will go away. I think all of those are myths. All of those, if you study uh, places in the world where society has collapsed, they're proven to be myths. Uh, I think Hollywood does, and the movies do more damage to what the actual uh, prepper, survivalist uh, person should be thinking about this sort of thing uh, than, than anything else. Men, desperate men, don't give up. How many stories have we all read, um, uh, even recently out of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, all the controversy over the uh, M4 5.56 NATO round not being strong enough, and you hear these stories coming out of these war zones. Uh, I hit him. He didn't go down. I hit him again. He still didn't go down. People don't give up, and they're not going to, especially when they're hungry. Forget re- re- religious fever or zealousness. People don't give up, not until they're down, down. Well, and I think when they're at a point where they feel like, well, either I succeed with this or I starve anyway in the next day or two. What's my incentive to to, to give up? My my you know my incentive to to not give up is I might live, and my incentive to give up is I'll definitely die. And at that point, um, as strong a motivator as fear can be, and pain compliance can be. Uh, the fear of death is 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 much greater of a definite than a possible. I guess is the way to look at it. I agree a hundred percent. Go to a a rifle class, uh, combat instruction. You know, go up to Monoc, and afterwards you will sit around with. Uh, military officers, private military contractors, law enforcement officers. And there is a percentage of those gentlemen, uh, of those professionals, who will say, they will come right out and say, I've got an M4, I've got 4,000 rounds of ammo, I don't need any other preparations. Yeah, I, I hear from those people once in a while, and I also think that, as dangerous as they are, I also think that they're misleading themselves. And if that's your plan, folks, you need a new plan. Because while there are a lot of soft targets out there, I think there's a lot of people taking more along the lines of the approach we're taking today. And some of those people with that plan are going to end up hanging from a pole somewhere, uh, which frankly is where they belong. Well, that and I, the message I would also like to send is there are tens and tens of thousands of people who have bought holding your ground, and they're going to be ready for you. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 I really don't understand people who think that way. I can understand desperation. I really can. I can understand people to get to the point where they're out of everything, and they cross the ethical boundary they normally would have not crossed People that will sit and premeditate that, well, if it happens, I'll just go kill and steal. Um, some of those people, I think, would do well to be buried with a backhoe right now. Um, I also think some of them, it's a, a fear response. In other words, they haven't done anything to prepare, so that's that's the bravado coming through. And, and some of them would, and some of them don't know what they would do, but I think it would be a bad choice overall. I think it would be a short-term career. Uh, is another way I would put it, uh, being a looter or a raider in this country. Um, what are your thoughts on, because we talked about some other countries, and there's a lot of countries out there where this kind of stuff's happened, where people get arms whenever they can, but the, the population of this country per capita 
is is probably better armed in peacetime than any other place in the world. Maybe Switzerland, because they pretty much give you a gun when you turn 18 and make you a, a Swiss reservist. Um, what impact would that have for the person with that plan, the fact that this country is so well armed? Well, I, I used to agree with, with uh, I, I've heard that philosophy before, and I used to kind of agree with it. Um, and when we were writing Without Rule of Law, I came across an interesting uh, statistic. And um, it, I, can't, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head right now. But going back to Somalia, the population in Somalia actually had a much higher percentage of firearms ownership than the United States. Was that before or after everything went to hell, though? Well, the the first, uh, it was slightly after was when the first study was taken, and actually the percentage has gone down. Oh, wow. uh, I, I think they're buying food or trading for food rather than AKs, but um, but it was a significantly higher percentage of firearms ownership. And so you would say, okay, um, how did that happen? How are those people displaced? How are they bullied? How are how come there is such a high percentage of orphans um, and not orphans from uh, the parents both being uh, dying of starvation or dying of violence, but orphans from abandoned children? A very high percentage. How could that happen? How could 70% of the population be displaced if they're so well armed? And that really kind of turned my head quite a bit, uh, thinking about that. And again, uh, being armed is not being prepared is, is what my final conclusion was from all of that. And I think that you're kind of hinting on the tactical mental thing, but I'm also thinking that being armed doesn't help you re- real well if you don't have anything to defend. So if you don't have food storage, if you don't have water stored, if you don't have the basic prepper stuff, then all you're defending is a shell. And as soon as your your short-term supplies run out, well, then you're in the position where you're going out trying to take. And But, of course, you're going out and trying to take from people that also don't have very much. So looting, I mean, looting only works while society has stuff. You, you, you can't loot a person that doesn't have anything. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely correct. Um, what do you think the most important aspect of de- defending a home is in, in a complete breakdown? If there's like one thing you got to make sure you got right, what is it? Hiding in plain sight. Stealth. Um, how, how can we do that? What are some ways we can make that happen? We go through them quite a bit in detail. Uh, they're, you know, first of all, the, the common sense things. Uh, spread, take a dresser full of clothes and a couple old chairs and spread them around the yard. Don't mow your grass. Don't walk through your grass. Don't trim the shrubs. Blacken the windows. Light discipline is very important. I go through the scenario with people. If I'm a bad guy, I'm looking for somebody to hit. I'm hungry. I, I'm, I'm needing to raid to eat. I'm going to go up at dusk or, or early nighttime. I'm going to go up on a water tower or a high tree or someplace, and I'm going to look for light. Unless it's firefly season, light equals people. And so light discipline, uh, the blacking of the windows. One of the most popular things uh, that we get feedback on from the book is making your home appear as though it's burnt out. Uh, that's not hard to do. Uh, some spray paint, set a couple old pieces of scrap lumber on fire, uh, 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 blacken out the windows, and and at least from a distance, make the home look abandoned. It's burnt. There's nothing here. Move on down the road. All of that sort of thing. Uh, noise discipline with children, uh, especially, or your generator or your rototiller. If you still have gasoline to do such a thing, very important. Um, if if you're uh, using a wood-burning stove, uh, the smoke uh, is a sure sign. A lot of people believe that the post-apocalyptic world fires will be very common and maybe wood-burning smoke wouldn't be necessarily a, a big neon sign pointing to your uh, bug-out location. But if you're in a remote area and I'm 
a wandering desperado, I'm going to be on the lookout for smoke. So there's all of those sorts of things that we go through, again, trying not to hurt the value of your home. Uh, we don't spend a lot of money. Um, you were talking earlier about surveillance. Uh, I don't know if anybody's checked lately, but the price of game cameras is next to nothing. Uh, solar charger, some re, uh, rechargeable batteries, game cameras, and a, and a PC, again, running off a solar charger. You can have one of the most sophisticated infrared uh, surveillance systems, early warning systems out there for not very much money at all, uh, less money than a rifle. And I would add to that one of the things that I've incorporated into the the, the cameras that we use is motion detectors that create an audible alert. Because if you have a fairly large piece of property to secure, it's great that you have cameras everywhere, but you can't necessarily be monitoring them all at the same time. We use a system based on MERS radio technology where we have the place broke up into sectors. So if there's movement or heat in that area, it will trip an alert to the base station in the house that will say alert sector one. And then we can use the cameras in that area to determine what that is. And that way, we're, we're like you said, we're not surprised. Um, and maybe it's a deer, but at least we know. Um, and I think that having that has been a huge uh, a huge, huge thing that's made us feel more secure that not only is the surveillance there, but an alert when you're not paying attention to tell you, hey, you need to check this area out. We are going to be picking berries and harvesting from the garden and carrying buckets of water and all of those things to eat and survive. Uh, hopefully there will be time to sit out on the back porch and read a book by candlelight. Um, and so the concept that you spoke of earlier, you're absolutely uh, in a, we're in agreement is set up early warning. Uh, even if it's a tripwire with one of the homemade noisemakers we have in the book using a shotgun shell. Surprise is a bad thing. And I don't care how well trained you are, how well armed you are. Uh, what your skill set is with an M4 carbine or an AK-47, if you get surprised, you're in trouble. And uh, especially even children, uh, uh, female members, uh, although I know quite a bit of female preppers who I think are more fierce than, than any of the fellas, um, you know, if, if you've got a family-type environment, if you have... Uh, elderly parents or grandparents around as part of your group, things like that. Along with the early warning system, have a plan on what everybody's supposed to do on contact. When your alarm goes off, I'm sure, you know, as well prepared as you are, Jack, your uh, wife, your children, your family members, your group members, they know where to go, what to do, and what's going to happen. And uh, all the fancy surveillance equipment and laser uh, trip uh, beams and, and all of that won't do you a bit of good if if everybody stands around and says, oh, that was probably a deer that set that off. Uh, we don't have to do anything. Yeah, I completely agree. What are your thoughts on animals as well as part of security? I mean, I have this giant wolf-looking German shepherd that's like 135 pounds, and even though he's a big dog and even though he's, I mean, I have no doubt about his capabilities as a, as an attack dog, um, he's a real nice animal, but he's very alert to things that maybe people wouldn't be. So I actually value him more for him picking up on things that I might not uh, than just his, his size and, and ability. For instance, the other day we had a neighbor who parked out on the street because I think she didn't want to have to back up in the dark because we have these long gravel driveways because uh, I live kind of up in the sticks. And he even knew the vehicle, but it was parked on the road. And when I walked him, he was, the hair was up on his ass, his ears were back, he was growling, he was checking it out. Just the very fact that it wasn't normally there tipped him off, and he can hear better and see better than I can. So I've always seen, even my dogs that are not as, let's say, security uh, perfect as a big German Shepherd, the fact that they have those extra senses is an extreme asset. Absolutely. There, uh, you know, and it's well documented several places. I have found 
uh, we've studied this a little bit for the books. Uh, the typical canine is a very good medium distance to close in warning system. Uh, I, I, I love dogs and animals too, but, but from the prepper point of view, it, it's an early warning system. It really is. I think a lot of people overestimate a canine's capabilities if it comes to a fight. Um, I don't personally, from my own personal experience, I don't worry about dogs. I don't care how big they are if I'm uh, uh, going into a fight. Uh, they are just another uh, uh, threat to be uh, eliminated, if you will. But from an early warning point of view, uh, they are excellent. I would advise people don't overestimate their range. 75 to 125 meters is about it. Um, and, and especially if they're more in an urban environment or suburban environment where they're used to people and cars and things like that. Now, an old country hound dog uh, that, uh, you know, never sees a car goes down the road is going to give you a lot more notice because, uh, it's something unusual, something that they're not used to. But uh, great, great early warning system, great security system uh, to keep you from being surprised, absolutely. I, one of the main things I like, and the dogs pick up on this even before we do with where we live, is we live on a gravel road. A vehicle uh, half to three-quarters of a mile away, you hear it. It, it, is, it is, I mean, on foot you could approach without any kind of real noise. I don't care if you were riding, you know, if you were running an electric car where the engine didn't make a noise, we would hear you coming and the dogs pick up on that. Are there factors like that that you would particularly look for in choosing a bug out location, a fallback location? You Oh, accessibility, again, on the spreadsheet that comes with holding your ground, one of the factors is proximity. Uh, it's not only proximity to major roadways, but the accessibility from the various directions to your bug out location. Um, along that vein, for example, and, and yeah, a gravel road is a great early warning indicator of a vehicle. I, I used to, as a child, we lived on a gravel lane. And yeah, we knew a long way away and the dog knew before we even did. Um, but for another thing that I, uh, choosing a bug out location, how close is the nearest interstate highway? Uh, we go through that, uh, go through the example of the Houston evacuations of the hurricanes. And I-10 basically became a 120 mile long parking lot. Uh, or, or I don't know the exact mileage, but it was a long parking lot. And the little towns, uh, even though they would, would be small, um, uh, beautiful little towns along the interstates, they were out of food, they were out of gasoline, they were out of bottled water uh, in no time. Uh, the one lady that I quote in one of the books said, you know, they were, they descended on us uh, like the locusts of the Bible, uh, and, and everything was gone uh, in no time. And so if your bug out location is five to eight miles from a, a interstate highway, even though there may not be anybody uh, that lives within a mile or two of you, people that are stuck on those highways, potentially evacuating the cities, they're going to start wandering through the woods looking for food. So what is your what is your estimation of what's too close to an interstate, what's too close to a major population center, assuming you have the budget, the ability to to, to get out, you know, like some people, you said you, you help people in a high rise because they don't have a choice. They're going to have to deal with what, but assuming a person does have the ability to create a secondary, what is like a minimum distance you'd be comfortable with from major highways and major population centers? Well, my personal bug out location um, is approximately halfway between Houston and Dallas, uh, which those of you not familiar with, with Texas, uh, that is about 240 miles distance. So I am just right at 120 miles from each one. So I am roughly uh, an hour and a half at, at 70 miles an hour uh, to, to get to the, to the BOL. Uh, the nearest small town to the bug out location is a town of about uh, 120 people, and it's five miles away. Uh, 
Um, and, and too specific, how far off of the, the interstate corridor are you? you can uh, give approximately, like, approximately 12 miles. Okay, so that's not a huge, it's not, you know, you're not, you know, 50 miles off the interstate, but you're also not a mile off the interstate. Uh, no, and um, again, go back and, uh, you know, don't take Joe Nobody's word or, or Jack's word for it. Uh, there is reams of documentation of the evacuation of Houston. And they, they not only did it once, they did it twice. Absolutely. Uh, go back and read uh, the small newspapers, uh, small town newspapers. Uh, there's archives of uh, stories. I mean, they're still telling stories in Houston about that. Um, you can't hardly go to the convenience store, and, and if somebody brings up a hurricane, oh, man, I'm not evacuating this time. I was stuck for, you know, a month of Sundays, and we didn't have any water, and the, the baby was out of diapers, and we were wandering all over the place looking for just diapers. And what you have to ask yourself, Joe, is, okay, in this scenario, everybody evacuated Houston. Rita hit further to the east, hit the, you know, the, the Beaumont uh, Orange area and into Louisiana. Went up through there, really didn't do much damage at all in Houston, and everybody was able to go home. What would have happened if that thing would have been tied up like that? The hurricane hits smack dab in Houston and goes up the, uh, the, the 45 corridor and hit those people out there and had them stuck there instead of for a couple days for who knows how long. I mean, there's people that are still hanging out in Dallas waiting to go back to New Orleans. I don't think they're really going, but... I mean, that kind of thing did happen. Um, you know, I used to live right in your area you're talking about, so I, I know kind of what you're saying there. Um, but if, if that had happened or if it had been a terrorist evacuation and on the way out the terrorist attack was really in Dallas, I mean, as bad as it was, it could have been a lot worse. Well, it's, I, I appreciate you, you uh, bringing that up. The fiction book, Holding Their Own, and by the way, the sequel was just released on Amazon this morning. Get in that little shameless plug. Um, anyway, the fiction book goes through that scenario. Exactly. Um, there's been an economic collapse. Uh, there is a fire burning out of control in Houston. And people are trying to evacuate on I-10. It becomes a parking lot. And what happens? Uh, where do you go? Uh, how do you get food? How do you get medicine and how the people in the small towns would react, how the people that control the convenience stores at the exits would react, uh, all of that sort of thing. And, and while it's a fictional, uh, obviously, uh, scenario, a lot of people have emailed us and, and uh, provided reviews saying, wow, that really opened my eyes. You're, you're absolutely right. That is a very realistic a concern and a very realistic situation. Yeah, I and I, I think that, that those are realistic scenarios, and it's an interesting thing that you took the I-10. Like, I guess you're taking the people who are heading like the, the San Antonio area or whatever, because that area doesn't exactly have a ton of resources if you get stuck there. Um, less so than the people that were heading north out of there. Well, when again, when uh, Rita was coming in. Uh, I think every interstate, but maybe one going directly east towards Louisiana, uh, I think every interstate in every direction uh, was a parking lot. I agree. Absolutely. It was just the, well, I think 45 got all of the press because um, there were people that, you know, like old folks, they put in a bus and they died from heat exposure and things like that. So that's where the media went to. But pretty much everything did get plugged up. You mentioned a couple of your books. You actually have a whole bunch. So you want to kind of give like just a rundown, all your books and a basic, you know, you know, sense or two on what they're about. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I'd love to. Um, the, the, our bestseller, uh, number one on the Amazon uh, survival skills uh, list for 20, over 20 weeks is called Holding Your Ground. Uh, preparing for defense if it all falls apart. Um, then there's a small little uh, guide that I wrote uh, called the Tiawaka Tuxedo, uh, Formal Survival Attire. And it was written, I, I kept seeing uh, people show up at, at instruction classes, rifle classes, uh, shooting classes, courses, if you will. And it's funny, they, they show up looking like um, 
uh, a 501 catalog with their load vest and their uh, body armor and all their molly pouches and uh, on the first day and by the second day they've stripped off most of this stuff and they're asking for band-aids for blisters and by the third day they're uh, it smells like a Bengay factory or a locker room in there after a bad loss um, and so it's really about uh, selecting your load gear uh, how to carry your essentials with you. Uh, I don't have a bug out bag, for example. I have a bug out vest. Everything I need to survive for a couple of days is, is on my load vest. Um, and so that's the Tiawaka tuxedo. It's really for beginners. If you're a military guy, if you're uh, experienced with Molly gear or Alice gear, uh, you know, you don't need that book. Uh, the third book is uh, Without Rule of Law. It is advanced skills in case you as a prepper lose your food supply. Uh, if there's an early frost and the garden's gone, if a tornado ravages the bug out location, if there's a flood uh, and you lose your stuff, it is how to infiltrate, hide, uh, scavenge, those sort of skills. And I, I do not condone taking things from other people. Uh, but I do uh, outline some preparations that you can have. Uh, I, I draw a very clear line between looting and scavenging, um, and that's without rule of law. And then the fiction books, there is Holding Their Own One and now Holding Their Own Two. Uh, it's about a, a middle-class uh, Houston couple. Uh, there is an economic collapse. Um, society falls off the edge and they try to bug out to their uh, West Texas retreat. Um, and it's been extraordinarily popular. It's fun, has some nice little prepper tips in it, uh, we've heard, but really it's for entertainment. Uh, and if so, if you're tired of reading all those old army manuals or Joe Nobody's instruction manuals, then, and you want just a good read with a little excitement, uh, you know, pick up holding their own. Very, very cool. And the website, of course, to get all of this stuff and more. Joe's got a blog uh, and uh, some cool products. I was looking at one of your little uh, – I thought I knew everything Paracord. I thought I had tied up and made and manufactured. But you have a little key fob-type uh, Paracord uh, implement over there that you can store an awful lot of stuff inside. I thought that was cool. So there's there's a bunch of cool stuff over at Joe's website, folks, and it is holdingyourground.com uh, you can get his books either on Amazon or Kindle or ebook and uh, I would definitely get by there today folks and check it out again holdingyourground.com as always I will have uh, links in today's show notes uh, for all this material so that they're easy to find so if you're driving down the road right now listening on your iPod or something like that plugged into a jack and you're wondering am I going to remember this just go by uh, the website, pull up today's list, uh, show, show notes, and you can uh, get all of this information there and get on over to, again, holdingyourground.com. Hey, Joe, man, it's been a great interview, one of the best ones I've ever done. I uh, haven't read a lot of your books, but I'm definitely going to after this, and uh, I appreciate you being with us today and sharing your knowledge. Well, thank you, Jack, and man, you, you keep up the good work, you and your folks. Uh, you're just wonderful advice good knowledge base very professionally done and uh, I'm a fan well I appreciate you Joe and folks with that this has been Jack Spirico today along with Joe Nobody helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way